Well, good morning, church. How are we doing today? Good deal. Hey, it's cold out and I'm loving it. I got up at 3.30 yesterday to take friends to the Indies so they could travel to Colorado for Christmas and it was snowing and I was happy even though it was 3.30 in the morning because I'm a good friend. Um, sorry, humble brag. <laughs> I won't get up for you at 3.30 in the morning though. I'm tired. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here at Shelbyville Community Church. And first off, I just want to say I'm grateful that you're spending your Sunday morning here with us. All right, so whether you're here in person or you're joining us online, I just want you guys to know I'm grateful that you guys are here uh, and uh, just want to say welcome. So this morning, we are actually talking about the Christmas story. You're like, buddy, he just read from Genesis. Yeah, he did because that's the start of the Christmas story, all right? So we're going to talk about the Christmas story, that story that most of us think of starting with an angel. And then there's a couple, and there's a baby in a manger because there's no room at the inn, and then you add some wise men and a camel, right? That is the Christmas story. Some of you may have an injection-molded, light-up plastic version in your front yard. It's the Christmas story. Now what's interesting is that we have four gospel accounts in the Bible and only two of them actually record the birth of Jesus. Matthew and Luke are the only two. The book of Mark actually starts its gospel account at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and John goes all the way back to creation. It's like in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Nowhere is like, there's a baby. And there's a reason for this. Because we've been given four different gospel accounts, the world has been given four different gospel accounts, and each one of these was written by a different individual to a different audience. And so in the book of Matthew, Matthew was written to the Jewish people. Matthew himself was a tax collector. He worked for Rome, but he himself was Jewish. And what made Matthew a phenomenal, phenomenal tax collector was his record keeping. And so when you read the account of Matthew, you see a ton of records being kept. And that's why at the beginning of Matthew, at his Christmas story, it starts with 17 verses of names known as the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew's written to Jewish believers. Mark was actually written to Romans. He was written to the people of Rome, and Rome loved power, and they loved action, and they loved leadership, and so he jumped straight into the ministry of Jesus. And he says, you guys want power, you want action, here is Jesus, this is what he did, and he did, and he did, and he did, and he uses the word and to connect Jesus' actions 1,375 times in his gospel. You want power? Here's power. Now the book of Luke was written to the Greeks. And the Greeks were a little more philosophical, they were into the arts, they were into the pursuit of truth. So they would sit around and have debates and have conversations, they were eloquent and into the arts. And so when you read his account, there's a lot more uh, interviews and and poetry and it's written far more in a way that uh, an intriguing mind would, would be tickled. And then you get to John. 
And John says, man, you guys got the Jews, you got the Romans, you got the Greeks, I'm going for everybody. And so we see in his, he starts, Ecclesiastes says, you know what, this is who our, our Jesus is. He created and then stepped into his creation. And one of the best known verses in all of the Bible is the best offer that's been extended to all of us. And it sounds like this, for God so loved thee that he gave his one and only son that believes in him shall not perish, right? He wrote this to the world so that anyone, whoever believes in him will not perish. And you might be saying, okay, cool. There's four different books written to four different people. What does that have to do with Christmas? Well, Matthew and Luke are the only two that record the birth story. And most of us tend to turn to Luke 2 for the Christmas story, Linus did in a Charlie Brown Christmas. And I think one of the reasons that folks tend to turn to Luke instead of Matthew is because Matthew starts with a genealogy. There's no cute babies, there's no angels, it's a long list of names. And if I'm being honest here, uh, there's some tongue twisters in there and as a Swedish man living in Indiana, I don't have a lot of friends named after these folks. And I don't think you do either, and that's why we tend to just skip over it. But not today. Today, we're starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon, the wife, uh, Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Still no baby. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Elakim. Uh, Elakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eliezer. Eliezer fathered Matan. Matan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Now why didn't Matthew start his account in verse 18? The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. Now we could spend a long time talking about just this. 
Well, there's several reasons. I think first off, if Matthew, who is Jewish, is writing to a Jewish audience, he is legitimately listing their family tree. Matthew is giving them a list of names that they would have been able to track. They could have looked at their history and said, yep, 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 king, yep, 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 uh, yep. They're tracking. From Abraham to Jesus, they're tracking. Second, this family tree is full of individuals in need of a savior. Badly, like if you think your family is jacked up, spend some time with these guys and then thank God that they're not written in the most sold book of all time. This family is full of liars, cheaters, adulterers, there's incest, there's murder, a prostitute, self-absorbed, power-hungry individuals, and one of them sold their brother into slavery. I think that there's some generational cycles of brokenness going on here. And third, the genealogy starts with a promise and it ends with its fulfillment. Because this genealogy starts with Abraham and it ends with Jesus and this is the Christmas story. Let's go back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 12, we are introduced to a man named Abram. And why God goes to Abram, we don't know, but he does. He goes to Abram and he says to him, go from your land, your relatives and your father's house to the land that I will show you. All right, so God tells Abram, I want you to leave everything that you know. Now, for most of us, we would hear that and we would say, yeah, that sounds a little scary, but to Abram, that was almost devastating because all of his safety and security was found with his tribe, with his clan, with his people. So God says, pack up everything and leave. Leave your safety, leave your security, and I want you to go, and I'll tell you when you get there. Notice he doesn't give him a destination. He says, I just want you to go, and I'll tell you when you get there. And then God starts his promise to Abraham in verse two. He says, I will make you into a great nation. I'll make you into a great nation. Now at this point, Abraham's 75. He's 75 years old and he has no children. So Abraham's gotta be thinking to himself, man, I'm not even a great grandpa. How am I gonna be a great nation? You want me to leave everyone I know and you're gonna make me into a great nation. And then God continues, he says, I will bless you and I will make your name great, right? I will make you famous. But if you're asking me to leave everyone I know and go to a place where nobody knows me, I'm going to be forgotten by the people that I know. How am I gonna be famous in a land where nobody knows me? This is where things take a big time left turn. God says, and you will be a blessing. And you will be a blessing. Now, this is a massive mind bender. Because if you read the Old Testament, there does not seem to be a ton of blessing going on. In fact, most people struggle with the level of violence found in the Old Testament. 
It is war, it is plundering, it's conquering, it is enslaving. To this point in history, blessing was not a thing, it was all about survival. You didn't bless anyone, you provided for your tribe, for your clan, for your people. And then God says, this is how I'm gonna make it happen. Verse three, he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. God says, you know what? Abram, I'm gonna be a part of your story and I'm gonna be a part of your children's story and I'm gonna be a part of your children's children's story. And I'm gonna be a part of this story until the very end and there is nothing that anyone can do about it. And then God finishes, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Every tribe, every clan, every people on earth will be blessed through you. Everyone on the planet will know your name and they will be touched indirectly through what I'm about to do through you. I don't know about you, but if that's what God came and told me, it'd probably be a little, uh, little bit of a wrestling match on whether or not I'm gonna follow through on that. But Abram and his wife do what God asks of them. And so they pack up their things and they start on a journey to destination unknown. And a lot happens in the following chapters. I mean, they find themselves in Egypt. Abram is scared that Pharaoh's gonna think his wife is beautiful, that she's hot, because she is. So he starts telling everybody, she's my sister, not my wife. Doesn't end well. They get the boot from Egypt. They're struggling to get pregnant, so they're saying, you know what, God told us that we were going to have kids and we were gonna grow into a nation and we can't even have one. And so his wife actually offers him his servant and says, you should sleep with her, maybe she'll get pregnant and give you a son since I am unable to do so. And so that happens, she does get pregnant, she has a son by the name of Ishmael. And God comes back to Abram and he says, man, I made a promise to you. Like, don't you trust that? And so he reiterates this promise to Abram and he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And he says, man, I'm gonna do amazing things through you. You've gotta be obedient to this. And so Abraham and his wife Sarah have a son when Abraham was 100 years old. And that son's name was Isaac. Well, Isaac goes on to have some sons himself. He's got Esau and Jacob, and they're twins, but Esau's the older one because he comes out first, but it says that as Esau's coming out of his mother, his brother's holding on to his heel. And so as the firstborn, Esau actually had the birthright. Like genealogy should be running through Esau, but Jacob was tricky, he was a deceiver, and he actually tricked his brother into giving him his birthright and getting this promise, this blessing from his father. And so the bloodline actually starts running through Jacob. Now similar to his great-grandfather, Jacob has an encounter with God. His name is changed from Jacob to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. 
It's a lot of boys. And they did not like each other. In fact, there was one in particular that they could not stand. His name was Joseph, and it got so bad, they said, should we kill him or should we sell him? Now, I got into some fights with my sisters, but that offer was never on the table. (laughs) At least not on my part. I don't know what my sisters were saying to each other. But they said, we're not going to profit if we kill him, so let's sell him. And so Joseph gets sold into slavery, and he lands in Egypt, and there in Egypt, a lot of things happen. God's favor is on Joseph, and it says that over the years, he ended up rising up to being substantial in Egypt. He becomes very, very powerful in Egypt. And one of the giftings that Joseph had was he could interpret dreams, and so he interpreted a dream that said, there's going to be great famine in the land, and so he started planning for this famine. They started stockpiling food, and just like the dream said, famine hit, and people were going hungry all over the region. And so these brothers and their father made their way to Egypt where there was food. And while they were there, they encountered Joseph and they were reconciled to Joseph and they were invited to come and stay in Egypt and they did. And it says that they became very fruitful and they multiplied. So these 12 sons had a lot more sons and they got so numerous over the years of living in Egypt that they became so numerous that Egypt was scared that they were actually gonna overthrow them and so Egypt enslaved all of them. So God went to Abraham and said, you are going to grow into a nation, and they did. But they weren't a great nation, they were a slave nation. So these people were living under hard oppression for hundreds and hundreds of years. You've got to imagine being a descendant of Abraham, knowing the promise that God had made to your great, 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 great grandfather. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing. I mean, I guess we've grown into a nation, but we're certainly not a great nation. We're a slave nation, and to be honest, I don't feel very blessed, nor do I have the capability to bless others. God provides a deliverer by the name of Moses, and Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, I need you to let these people go, and Pharaoh says, no. And if you read this story in the book of Exodus, you will see that Egypt did not feel blessed by Israel, because there was plague after plague after plague, and eventually they had enough, and they gave them the boot. They said, you guys need to get out of here. So they landed in the land of Canaan that was settled by the Canaanites. And in similar fashion, the people of Canaan definitely did not feel blessed by the people of Israel. There was continued bloodshed. Now a thousand years have gone by from the time that God went to Abraham. A thousand years have gone by and we get to a point in history where we hear of this guy named David. And he becomes king and he unites the 12 tribes of Israel, right? They leave Egypt. There's 12 tribes that correlate with the sons of Israel. And so they go from being a nation to being a kingdom. 
They're united. And under King David, there are treaties with all the nations surrounding them. There is peace in the land. David was the war king. He settled things and there was peace. And so Abraham's family grew into a nation which grew into a kingdom. And for the first time, they were in a position to do something meaningful. Now David has a son by the name of Solomon. Solomon is known as the builder king. He was incredibly wise. He actually asked God for wisdom. He received it. And with that wisdom, he was able to expand the reach of their nation. They gained economically. They gained in so many different ways that people from around the known world were coming to see what Solomon had built, what this nation was doing. They wanted to hear the wisdom from Solomon and this kingdom had grown in its wealth and influence and for the first time they were in a position to be a blessing to the world. The very thing that God told Abraham would happen. But Solomon decided that he was gonna start marrying the daughters, kings from all these other nations. And he didn't just marry them, he started worshiping all of their gods. And so God comes to Solomon and he says, Solomon, I'm telling you, if you continue down this track, it's not gonna end well. Like this united kingdom that you guys have, it's gonna break. This temple that you've actually built for me, like it's gonna come down. Solomon, turn, and he doesn't. And it says that Solomon continued doing what he did. And after Solomon died, What once was a united kingdom actually split into two. So you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom was called Israel. They kept the name. The southern kingdom went by the name of Judah. And so when these two kingdoms split, so did their wealth. So now they have two economies. They have two militaries. And there was great chaos. And for several hundred years, they coexisted, each with some kings, but mostly under the rule of bad kings. 300 years later, the northern kingdom of Israel is invaded by these people called the Assyrians. They were some bad dudes. So they showed up on the scene started enslaving people, started dispersing them throughout their empire. Everybody in their empire, oh, there's this new land, they started moving in. The northern kingdom basically vanished. And not long after, the southern kingdom, Judah, is under attack by these same people. They have no position of strength, they have no position of authority, and while this is going on, God sends a prophet to them to give them some encouragement, to continue keeping them going on this promise that was given to Abraham. And in Isaiah 49, six, God says to them, I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Like I will make the nations look upon you. Now can you imagine being a descendant of Abraham? It's like, well, we we were a great nation. Like then we split and like, they're not even there anymore. We're here, they're coming for us. And you're telling us that we're gonna be a light to the nations? 
Like we can't save ourselves. What do you mean we're gonna be a part of saving the world? And soon after this prophecy, Assyria ends up taking over the southern kingdom of Judah. And they become what's called a vassal state, meaning they still existed, they still functioned somewhat the way that they did, but they were under the rule of Assyria. And while under Assyrian rule, a new empire was growing in strength, and they became the bad boys on the block. They were known as the Babylonians, and they were brutal. And so while under Assyrian rule, Babylon shows up, and they sack Judah the way that Assyria sacked Israel. They enslave a ton of people. They start shipping them out in exile. People are distributed all over the region. They came in, they slaughtered their army, and that temple that Solomon had built was brought to rubble. The very thing that God warned Solomon was gonna happen, happened. And this was an extremely low point for the descendants of Abraham. And what's crazy is just as quickly as Babylon took power, there was another superpower on the rise, the Persians. And so while they're in exile under Babylon, they're in exile for 70 years, Persia takes over. And they actually are granted a little favor with Cyrus, the king of Persia, and he actually says, hey, you guys can start going back to Judah. And so there's wave after wave of, of Jews leaving all of these different areas and going back to settle back in Judah. They rebuilt the temple. They rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But they're pretty spiritually apathetic. They've been beaten up. They've been beaten down. And so just like before, God sends a prophet to speak into them. And this time it was the prophet Malachi. And in Malachi 1.11, we see God tell the people of Judah, he says, my name will be great among the nations from the rising of the sun to its setting. Incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord. Now again, imagine being a descendant of Abraham, right? This prophet shows up and is saying, you know what? God says his name's gonna be great, right? Yahweh thinks that he's great. And as I read this, I think to myself, this sounds like your kid's sports team that just gets obliterated week after week after week and whatever team they're on and you're the parent that's just like, you got it, buddy, you're gonna make it. So they're sitting here listening to this what is this, encouragement? Like, you've got it, like, keep going. Like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, God? You're not great. Your name's being mocked. Like, you're a joke amongst the nations. Like, you're pathetic, you can't take care of us. We can't defend ourselves, we can't even feed ourselves, and you're over here saying, your name will be great? Are you kidding me? We will never be a great nation and the name of our God will never be known. But God isn't finished. He says, from the rising of the sun to its setting. Right, the sun rises and the sun sets everywhere on this planet. He's saying to the ends of the earth, people are gonna know my name. Everywhere will hear my name. 
and incense and pure offerings will be presented in my name in every place. Right? Everywhere that there is worship, there are going to be people that recognize who I am and worship me. Across the globe, where the sun rises and where the sun sets, there will be worship because my name will be great amongst the nations. And again, the people of Judah just couldn't hear it. Because first it was Assyria, and then it was Babylonia, and then it was Persia, and here come the Greeks. And this man you may have heard of before by the name of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, he was known for his military conquests. He was known for his political control. He was also intent on spreading Greek culture, spreading a common language. Now again, imagine being a descendant of Abraham. You've been run over again and again and again and again. And now you're being run over by a guy whose name is Alexander the Great. You've got to be thinking, man, Yahweh thinks his name is great. You know who's great? Alexander is great. Zeus is great. Apollo is great. Hermes is great. Aphrodite is great. You think we're going to be a light to the nations? Like we are low man on the totem pole literally getting kicked around. Yet somehow we're going to be a part of the salvation of the world. Now, tradition tells us that in the year 63 BC, a man by the name of Pompey also went by Pompey the Great. He was from Rome, and he shows up to the region that we now call the Holy Land, and he started conquering tribe after tribe, village after village, he showed up and he slaughtered, and he took And it says that he rode up to Judah and he gets to Jerusalem and he scales the walls of Jerusalem and he sacks Jerusalem. And he rides his horse into the city and he actually rides his horse up onto the temple. This was insane as a Jew to see this guy just completely disrespect this place of worship, this house of the almighty God. And Pompey the Great gets off his horse, slaughters the priests, and he goes into this room known as the God Vault. Ancient temples, they had a room where they would keep their idol, where they would keep the image of their God, their deity. And whenever there was a celebration, whenever something happened, they would pull out the image, the likeness of their idol so that all could see and all could worship. And he walks into the God Vault, what in the scriptures is called the Holy of Holies and he finds an empty room. And he laughs. Why do these people have a temple with nothing to worship in it? What a pathetic religion. These people have a temple and a non-existent God. What's all the fuss? And it says that he annexes the Holy Lands into the Roman Empire. 
So if you are a descendant of Abraham, first it's Egypt, and then it's Assyria, and then it's Babylon, and then it's Persia, and then it's Greece, and then it's Rome. And with each one, they're more and more powerful, more and more grand, and more and more great. Those were great nations. Those were powerful nations. So in the end, God was kind of correct, right? Kind of. They grew into a nation. But they definitely were not blessed, nor did they bless. All of the nations would not be blessed through Abraham. Israel would not be a light into non-Jewish nations, and the Jewish God would certainly not be worshiped throughout the world. Because nobody's interested in a God that can't take care of his own people. And this is what makes the Christmas story so remarkable. Because when things were as hopeless as they could be, when God's promise to Abraham was as out of reach as it could possibly be, The Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter four, verse four, he's writing about this. He's looking back at what took place and he said, in the completion of time, in the completion of time, when things were the way they needed to be, God sent Gabriel to Nazareth. When there was Pax Romana or Roman peace. Generation after generation after generation, there has been war, there has been constant battle, constant fighting, and for the first time in history, there is a common peace amongst the land. When there is a common Greek and Roman culture, when there is a common language, when there's a highway system connecting the known world, when there is a port system put into place with all the major metropolitan areas having access to, when things had stabilized and God could have their undivided attention, when things were the way that God wanted them, when everyone had given up on the promise that he made to Abraham, when nobody was expecting it, God sent Gabriel to Nazareth. Luke 1, 26. The angel Gabriel was sent to God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary and the angel came to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be because nobody in this part of the world has felt God for a very, very, very long time. She was troubled by it. And then the angel told her, do not be afraid for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus and he will be great 
And he will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. And this month, this morning, this week, leading into Christmas, people all across the globe will tell this story. How did that happen? You wanna know why Matthew starts his Christmas story with the genealogy? Because in the end, God kept his promise to Abraham. Because in the end, through Abraham, every nation on earth has been blessed. Because in the end, Jesus, the light of the world, our salvation to the nations comes. Because in the end, his name is great from the rising to the sun setting and everywhere that people worship, there are people who recognize him. When the time came to completion, God sent his son and that is the Christmas story. That's the Christmas story. Who's putting that in their front yard next year? You know, I think that for most of us, we're familiar with the Christmas story. We're familiar with this idea of this couple having a baby, they weren't married yet, it was really weird culturally, there were some issues going on, Joseph doesn't want to really deal with it, but an angel comes to him and says, do it. They have a baby, they put him in a trough because there's no room, like we're so familiar with this story. But this is the gospel. When you have been beat up, when you have been chewed on, when you have been kicked around, when you have lost all hope, when you have nothing, Christ shows up. And he says, I love you. You're mine. That promise that God made to Abraham, we're feeling it. That promise that God made to Abraham that took thousands upon thousands of years that was 17 verses of really bad names. It's God fulfilling his promise. And I don't know where you're at today. I have no idea if you're in a good spot, if you're on top of the world. I don't know if you are in the darkest spot you have been in in your life, but I'm telling you this. Christ came for you. Jesus came for you. And that changes everything. Because in this season, we celebrate the coming of a baby. And in a couple of months, we'll celebrate when he goes to a cross, when he dies, when he's buried, and when he raises, defeating death. And the reason we celebrate the birth of a baby is because of what he does on the cross and what that means for us. We celebrate Christmas because of the cross. We celebrate Christmas because it's the fulfillment, the fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. One of my favorite Christmas songs, I only have one and it's this one. 
My wife tells me I'm Scrooge. It's this song, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And I think that that title is so incredibly fitting when you look at how long it took for the fulfillment of this promise. Come thou long expected Jesus. In Egypt, come Jesus. Under Assyria, come Jesus. Under Babylon, come Jesus. Under Persia, come Jesus. Under Greece, come, per- come Jesus. Under Rome, come Jesus. For you and I today, come Jesus. So together, let's sit and listen to these words. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. Merry Christmas, everybody. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a story. More than that, what a reality. Father, thank you for that promise that you made to Abraham. Thank you that you kept that promise. Thank you that through him we have been given the blessing of Jesus. And I ask that in this season that the light of Christ would shine. That during this season that we would be bold with our family and our friends. That we would share the good news with them. That we would be a blessing to those around us. Father, thank you for showing up when hope is lost. I ask that you do today for anybody who finds themselves in that spot what you did for Mary. That you would speak value into her. That they would know that they're valued by you, that they matter to you, that they are loved by you. Father, I pray for those that have lost hope that in this Christmas season they would know that you keep your promises, that you deliver, and that you save. Today I find that folks would, would find their hope in your son. And I ask this in the name of Jesus, amen. amen. Man, it was good to be with you this morning. Hope to see you guys here on Saturday at four and six. Have a great week.